Hebrews 13, 1 to 25, hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, bow for a moment for a brief word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless this time. Uh, God, you've given us a very packed word today, um, filled with a lot of exhortations. And uh, we pray, God, that not only would you be our guide, not only would you be our teacher, but uh, we know that with the Holy Spirit comes power and power to convict and power to transform our hearts, power to change our very desires. And we know that comes by way of hearing from you. Uh, you're a God who speaks, which the author of Hebrews has said uh, previously several times. And so in this moment, would you speak to us as a congregation? Would you speak to us personally and individually and powerfully uh, that we might know you? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are finishing our series through the book of Hebrews, and uh, to be quite honest, I'm not really sure how to preach a passage like this, because it is filled with so many exhortations of various kinds. Uh, I think there are probably about 20 exhortations here about how we should live the Christian life. And, you know, there are times when I'm preaching and I'm giving a sermon, and I'm very conscious of time, right, uh, because... Uh, you know, I heard if you're not the most dynamic speaker, you should preach about 
28 minutes and you can hold people's attention for about 28 minutes. So my goal is to always preach for about 28 minutes. But also, I'm, uh, I know that there's kids next door and I'm trying to coordinate time. So I'm very conscious of time. And there are times where if I'm preaching uh, and if I didn't say, say everything I wanted to say, what I might do is like kind of at the end of the sermon, just kind of say a bunch of miscellaneous stuff that I want to get to, but I can't say it in any kind of depth. And to me, chapter 13 feels a little bit like that. Uh, it feels like uh, the author is kind of getting to the end of it. And uh, I don't know, maybe he's running out of ink. Maybe he's running out of uh, whatever he's writing on. Maybe the courier is like, all right, I'm ready to go and deliver this message and deliver this letter to this community. I don't know what's going on, but it kind of seems like at the end, he's like, all right, there's a lot of things that I wanted to say. Let me just say it really briefly all at once at the end. And uh, you kind of get a hint of that because at the end of this uh, chapter, he says, bear with my exhortation for I've written to you briefly as if to say, bear with this barrage of exhortations that I'm giving to you, but I do have to keep it brief. And uh, since the entire point, or since the point of this entire letter has been that Jesus is superior, Jesus is better, I like to think that these exhortations are a practical way to show if you believe that Jesus really is better, this is what life should look like. This is how your life should be shaped by Jesus. And so... I don't know if there's any kind of organization here necessarily, but here's how I'm going to organize the message. I'm going to say if Jesus is really better, and if that's what you believe, it should shape your social life, it should shape your private life, and it should shape your religious life. So we'll look at those three things. Now, if you believe Jesus is better, it really should impact the way you view people, people in general. The beginning starts by talking about love, uh, brotherly love, which is Philadelphia and uh, hospitality to strangers or love towards strangers, which is uh, philozenia, right, love of, right, that's where we get the word xenophobic, uh, love of strangers. And so the first part of this passage and the exhortations is really talking about love. Now, uh, I, uh, to be quite honest with you, I'm quite tired today because uh, yesterday I officiated a wedding and uh, towards the uh, middle of the wedding, I drank a bunch of coffee because uh, it was in Long Island. I had to drive back, and I, w- I wasn't finished with the sermon, so I knew I had to go back home and work, so I drank a lot of coffee. But that coffee uh, kept me up, and I didn't end up being able to fall asleep until like about 2.30. I'm a little bit tired, but I officiated this wedding yesterday, and this couple, like many couples these days, met on a dating app. Um, and I realized one of the downsides, I mean, there's a lot of, I guess, positives in terms of dating apps, in terms of accessibility and convenience of being able to meet people. But one of the downsides of these dating apps is uh, you kind of put yourself out there to be judged based on, like, the profile you put or the picture that you put. And then you make a determination whether, all right, based on this profile or based on this picture, do I want to meet this person, right? That's essentially how dating in general works, and specifically technology has made that more poignant. I think a lot of our relationships are becoming more and more like that uh, because we are a society of consumers. And again, I think technology has uh, accelerated that point and therefore we are being forced to consume one another even through social media. But that's not the way that we are supposed to or meant to view human relationships. And Jesus calls us to view our human relationships in a different way. Because if we are always making a determination regarding someone, if someone is worth our time, worth our love, worth our energy then there are probably a whole host of certain kinds of people that we will not engage with and serve and love. 
So what I want to do is I actually want to focus on what it says in verse 2 regarding showing hospitality to strangers because I think that's a very important exhortation for us and especially in a place like New York. I believe showing hospitality is going to be probably one of the most significant ways in which we can serve the people in the city and maybe one of the most underrated ways in which we understand how we can serve people in the city. Now, first, hospitality serves the uh, practical purpose of creating space so that people can meet and gather together and build community. And the second, I, I think, I believe many people in New York uh, who are lonely are actually longing for a community to belong to. Uh, I did an entire sermon on this earlier this year on hospitality and um, uh, because I think it's that important. But I mentioned in that sermon, loneliness is a growing problem in our world, uh, especially in the Western world. Not only that, but I don't think people realize that they have a problem with loneliness because a lot of the symptoms I read of loneliness and depression are actually very similar. There is this book called The Lonely American by two clinical psychologists, and uh, their thesis is basically a lot of what we call depression is probably just loneliness, chronic loneliness. Uh, But, you know, you go to a doctor. Depression is a little bit easier to treat in a sense because there's medication for it. You can prescribe medication, whereas loneliness is a little bit more complicated, right? Loneliness isn't as instantaneous. Loneliness requires that you form these healthy relationships over a long period of time and actually experience and find belonging to a community of people. And that's much harder to do. Now, I think uh, this trend is actually an opportunity for churches in New York City to serve people uh, because I do believe many people in this city are lonely. And one of the ways we can do it is through hospitality. But let me also be clear. Hospitality is not what many people think of hospitality. It's not simply entertaining. It's not simply hosting. Uh, They may look the same, but I think the heart is a little bit different. Why? Because, you know, when we entertain, what we're worried about is, is my apartment clean? Is it big enough? Are people going to like the food that I serve? Are people going to enjoy the uh, the way I decorated the place and feel at home and those kinds of things? And I, th- I think a lot of those concerns really are a reflection of how do people view us, right? How do people view me as a host? How, do, how are people judging me? What is their opinion of me? Hospitality has none of that. All hospitality is concerned with is whether this person, this stranger, feels welcomed, accepted, and can find a place to potentially belong to a community of people. That's, that's what hospitality is concerned with. It's love for the stranger. But there's something that else that we should consider, too, because as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, uh, you may know that this is a community that is being persecuted. Now, in a community that is being persecuted or in a context of persecution, hospitality is a little bit trickier. And I learned this many, many years ago when I went to China and I visited a house church in China. And you kind of realize, you know, it's it's a little bit risky for house churches in China to kind of invite a stranger, a random stranger, into their place of worship. Why? Because uh, this stranger could potentially be a government spy. This potential stranger could potentially be hostile towards Christians and report this gathering or this house church to the government. And so in a context of persecution, you can only imagine the temptation to neglect hospitality. And even so, even though this is a community that's being persecuted, even though there's risks with hospitality, the author's exhortation is show hospitality. Don't neglect it, even though the temptation is there. Why? According to verse 2, he writes, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
Now, this is referring to a story in Genesis 18 where Abraham welcomes these three strangers who actually turn out to be God's angels. Two of these angels go to Sodom to meet Lot, and the people of Sodom, they don't show hospitality, but their response is to do the exact opposite of hospitality, and uh, they're very uh, aggressive, and they attempt to sexually assault these two angels. And uh, the point that the author of Hebrews is saying is, right, they didn't know. They just saw people. They just saw men, but they were actually angels. The author is saying, you never know who these strangers may be, right? Jesus actually says something similar in Matthew 25 when he talks about clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, visiting the sick or in prison, and saying, you are actually welcoming me. You are actually welcoming Jesus when you do those things. And I think the point is this. If you can only see people, if you can only see strangers with your physical eyes and not with the eyes of faith, then you may potentially miss on the opportunity to bless God in your hospitality. Cannot neglect hospitality. Second, if Jesus is better, then it does shape the impact it has on your private life. I don't know what to categorize uh, sex and money, but we'll just call it private life, things that take place in the private. Verses 4 to 6 have to do with uh, keeping the marriage bed pure, have to do with being content and not loving money. And sex and money is interesting in that you you often see these two things paired together in the Bible, uh, especially from the perspective of ancient Jews. Even in the Ten Commandments, after the commandment prohibiting adultery, the next one is the commandment prohibiting stealing. Now, why do sex and money form a, a good pair? And I think one of the reasons is both have to do with pleasure, okay? Uh, pleasure is a good thing because God created us to experience pleasure. One of the ways in which we glorify God is when we are experiencing the pleasure that he gives us and we are responding to that pleasure in worshiping him and in gratitude towards him. And therefore, we don't want to be like ascetics who believe, you know, let's renounce all worldly pleasures uh, because if we do that, then we're going to reach this higher spiritual state. That's not exactly the biblical view. At the same time, All pleasures require boundaries in order for it to be truly pleasurable, in order uh, for our protection. And the problem in our culture, I think, is we tend to see boundaries as a violation of personal freedom or individual freedom. But boundaries are actually a really good thing for our protection. Uh, Think about alcohol and food consumption. These two things can be pretty pleasurable, but if you don't have boundaries, that pleasure quickly turns into something destructive. Uh, You get... Uh, overweight, cholesterol issues, you get diabetes, um, you get hangovers and things like that. Uh, So boundaries, even with food and drink, are a good thing. For some of you, work can be a pleasurable thing. I know for many of you, work is not pleasurable, but for some of you, work can be a pleasurable thing. But without boundaries, if you are just working all the time, your work is going to destroy you, maybe even destroy your relationships and destroy your family. You see, anytime we view a commandment in the Bible, uh, it really does require faith, uh, not to simply to do it, but to trust in the inherent goodness of it, that God is commanding us to do these things because he loves us and he wants to protect us and he wants to see us flourish. Boundaries don't mean that God wants to destroy our joy, but it actually means he wants to protect it. So it's talking about the marriage bed, uh, keeping that undefiled is talking about enjoying the pleasure of sex within the protective boundaries in the context of a covenant marriage. Likewise, money can afford you all kinds of pleasures, especially in New York. If you have a ton of money, you can afford a, a great apartment in one of the best neighborhoods. You could eat the best foods and go to the best restaurants. You could see the best Broadway shows. You can shop for the nicest things, and you can enjoy the pleasures of life 
But if your pursuit of money and if your spending of money is without boundaries, it's going to have a negative effect on you. Uh, I think we experienced this as a society uh, a, many, a couple years ago during the financial crisis. Uh, but on an individual level, if you love money too much, you know the, the one thing you won't have? Contentment. You'll never be content. Uh, there's an article that I've referred to in the past uh, about a hedge fund trader named Sam Polk. And the one thing that struck me about that article is he made $3.6 million, not in salary, in bonus, right, in a one-time shot. He made $3.6 million, and he writes about how angry he was, how upset he was, because he didn't feel like it was enough. And his conclusion was that he was addicted to money. And uh, when you're addicted to money, you're never content with what you have because you always want to consume more. Now, here's what I think. I imagine a place like New York City where cost of living is so high, most of us probably don't feel like we make enough money, right? I feel that way. And therefore, the temptation is, oh, I'm so discontent with my situation and my life. I need more. And from that place of discontent, we're probably always wondering if we should make life changes. Uh, Should I move to another place, to another city? Uh, I I think half of us are thinking that, if not three-quarters of us are thinking that. Should I uh, seek a different career path or maybe another job? And, of course, it's not wrong to consider these things, but when we feel discontent, the problem is not that we make these life choices. The problem is we will never be thankful for what we have already been blessed with, what God has already given to us. In the Garden of Eden, you know, God set boundaries, too, around this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know what the problem with Adam and Eve was? They focused on this one tree that God prohibited, and they missed out on all the other trees that God said, come, enjoy, eat. They were discontent because of that one prohibition. And when we do that, right, when we're just focused on what we can't have, what we don't have, we are discontent, and in our discontentment, We don't focus on what God has given us. Money is a useful utility meant for our pleasure. Uh, I would say it's probably a morally neutral thing. Uh, But if money becomes our greatest love, it becomes our idol, it actually will have a destructive effect on us and our souls and deprive us of true pleasure because in our pursuit of it, we'll never truly enjoy it. You see, contentment has nothing to do with what we have in our bank accounts and our salaries and those kinds of things. But contentment is all about seeing the other trees that God has given to us and enjoying what God has given to us. Finally, if you believe that Jesus is better, then it should impact, I'm going to call it your religious life. I didn't know what to call this either, but I'm not saying, I'm not using the word religious in a negative sense, but I'm trying to make a distinction between uh, the common part of our lives and the sacred part of our lives. So when it talks about remembering your leaders who spoke to you, the word of God in verse 7, and then it talks about not being led away by strange teachings in verse 9, and then it talks about following Jesus outside the camp and bearing the reproach, and finally in 15 and 16, it talks about offering a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Uh, I'm going to say all of these exhortations have to do with our personal devotion to Jesus. What does it look like to be devoted to Jesus? Different cultures actually have different ways of understanding this and answering this question. Now, me personally, I grew up in a Korean immigrant church, and in that kind of context, I think devotion means a lot of sacrifice. Uh, In a Western context, devotion is probably primarily individualistic and personal, so maybe devotion is doing your uh, private 
times of devotion of reading the word and prayer and those things are are uh, of course expressions of devotion uh you know in other contexts and i would say maybe in the uh in, in the black church context uh devotion might be uh speaking out against injustices that are taking place in the community and in the neighborhood you see different cultures might interpret devotion a little bit differently and uh they're all right to some extent but it would be interesting to compare our list of what it means to be devoted to Jesus to what the author of Hebrews seems to think are important here. And, of course, I don't think the author of Hebrews is being exhaustive. Uh, so let me just quickly uh, mention a couple things. First, devotion means remembering your leaders and submitting to them. Uh, probably most people would not consider that to be an important part of devotion. And uh, that's not the impulse that our culture gives us because we are generally suspicious of most forms of authority, but that's actually what pastors and elders are there for, uh, to keep watch over your souls because pastors and elders are going to be accountable to God for them. And that is an incredibly uh, frightening thought if, uh, for the elders and for myself, uh, but that's the spiritual reality of the situation. So the author of Hebrews says, right, um, remember your leaders and obey them. Second, devotion means ground, being grounded in the truth of God's word, and that's probably related to the leadership part because um, if the leader is faithful, they will speak the word of God to you. Uh, the negative prohibition, don't be led away by strange teachings, has to do with being grounded in the truth of God's word. Now, how does a person stray from, uh, from God's word? Uh, I don't think the answer is actually intellectual. I don't think we stray from the truth of God's words for intellectual reasons, but I think most of the time it's because of desires of the heart. When our heart wants something, when our heart desires something, the temptation is to change what uh, <laughs> God's word says so that we can get what we want. And, uh, you know, there's a prayer that we pray sometimes in our liturgy, and it's asking God to forgive us for shaping him into what we want rather than conforming to what he wants of us. And that's a very real temptation for us. Uh, and that's a very real thing we need to confess because if our hearts go unchecked, that's what we end up doing. Some cultures don't want God to be gracious because there's a lot of oppressors and they need to be judged. Other cultures don't want God to be a judge because they want to indulge in all kinds of things and not uh, want these things to be considered to be sin. Devotion to Jesus ultimately means this. Um, whether we like what God's word says or not, if our hearts are devoted to who Jesus is and committed to him, uh, we are the ones that conform to what God's word says. Third, devotion means a willingness to suffer for Christ, and I think that's what verse 13 is getting at. By the way, you see how why it was hard to like organize a sermon because <laughs> he had so many disparate parts, but I'm doing my best here. Third, devotion means a willingness to suffer for Christ, and that's what verse 13 is getting at. And that may sound unusual to us because we don't live in a context where there is intense persecution, but there may be a day where we will experience a degree of persecution and we will be called to endure. Now, for believers in history, that oftentimes meant they would be imprisoned. That meant their businesses suffered. That meant that their social status suffered and they were mocked and they were rejected by society and that even meant for some people that they were killed on account of their faith and this exhortation is to follow jesus in his sufferings and the fourth thing devotion me and the final thing i'll say about this devotion means offering sacrifices pleasing to god now verses four, 15 and 16 talk about two kinds of sacrifices first we should offer up a sacrifice of praise, which I mean to be a public declaration that God is worthy, that he is worthy of our praise. 
Uh, and we do that in worship. We can even do that in conversation. And, um, you know, I bet most of you are, don't like to talk about your faith. And if you know the word evangelism, evangelism, maybe you're a little bit nervous in doing that. Um, but here's some advice. You can just say, man, I think God's been so good to me because X, Y, and Z, right? And you're not uh, proselytizing. You're not forcing your faith upon somebody. But you are declaring the praise of God uh, in, in a public space to people, and that is a good thing. Uh, the second thing it says we should do good and share what we have, and I think that's talking about the social responsibility that Christians have to be generous and to seek the good of those around us. Uh, so if we think Jesus is better, it shapes our religious life. It shapes our devotion. Ah, okay. Now let me try to bring all these things together in one thread, okay? Here's a challenge. I guess the question is, how do we do these things, right? Uh, there's a number of theological realities in here that give us the power to do these things. And, you know, verse 5, for example, talks about how God will never leave us or forsake us. Verse 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 12 talks about how Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And uh, all of these things are worth reflecting and meditating on in terms of theological realities that shape us spiritually. But what I want to do is I want to focus on one verse and try to thread everything through this one verse. Verse 14 says this, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Uh, there is this commentator, and uh, he wrote a commentary in the book of Hebrews. And he has a really interesting way of understanding the structure of the book of Hebrews. And he says this, you know, in the first part of the book, it has largely to do with Jesus' prophetic ministry. The second part of the book largely has to do with Jesus' priestly ministry. And the third part of the book has to do largely with Jesus' kingly ministry. And I thought that was actually a really creative way to see and understand the book of Hebrews. And if that's the case, then this section belongs to the aspect where Jesus is demonstrating his kingly ministry, where uh, he reigns over the kingdom of God as our king. These exhortations about brotherly love and love for stranger and sex and money and doing good and sharing what you have all have to do with the kingdom of God and submitting to the reign of our king in the heavenly city that is to come. If you're a Christian believer today, did you know you are actually a citizen of another city? You belong and are shaped by another city. Uh, you know what like an alien is or maybe even an immigrant and you come from your home country and you're a citizen of your home country but you reside in another country and uh, if you're an immigrant, you are still shaped by your country of citizenship. Uh, you may speak that language, you may eat that food even though you reside in a different country. It's a little bit like that. Where is our belonging? Where is our citizenship? Well, according to the Bible, if you're a believer... You are citizens of a heavenly city, and that ultimately shapes who you are. But here's the other part of it. You're kind of like an exile. You're an alien. In this world, in this earthly city, you are in a place where you don't necessarily belong, but you still reside here. Now, verse 12 tells us that Jesus suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Do you know how we became citizens of this heavenly city? It was through what verse 12 says. The only things outside of the city were dead bodies, dead animals, lepers, 
anything that would have been alienated from the rest of society, anything that would have been considered unclean. And the author of Hebrews recognizes that when Jesus goes and he dies upon the cross, he is being alienated. He is being exiled to outside the city. But because Jesus was exiled, because Jesus was alienated, we are actually allowed to be brought in and we are made citizens of a heavenly city. So I think that means there's this constant tension uh, in the Christian life because on the one hand, we, we know we don't belong here and our citizenship is in heaven. On the other hand, we reside here on earth and sometimes heaven and our, on earth and earth are, uh, are in conflict in terms of values. And, uh, th- but the city that is to come is what shapes us. But because we reside here, we care about here and we want to seek the good of the earthly city. That's what Jeremiah 29 says. So how do we seek the good of where we reside, of this city? And let's be very practical here. How do we seek the good of New York City? By living as true citizens of the heavenly city. What does that mean? It means doing what chapter 13 has been saying. Uh, Our lives should probably be paradoxical. Uh, We want to be open to all people. We want to show hospitality and open our homes to everyone. But we don't want to open our marriage beds to everyone. Uh, We want to feel filled and we want to feel content, even in the moments where we feel like we have very little. We want to share everything that we have and continue to do good, even when we feel like we have nothing and not much to share. These things sound like radical things to do and crazy things to do and impossible things to do. But the only way we can do it is actually when we understand verse 4 when it says to seek a city that is to come. Because you see, in that city, there is heavenly blessing. In that city, because we are co-heirs with Christ and we've received an inheritance, we are wealthy in that city. In that city, we are no longer aliens but we have been brought in, and therefore we have acceptance. In that city, we have an identity. In that city, we have access to that which is most beautiful, in the person of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. As you seek that city, you'll be able uh, to reside in this city with a lot of radical love and power and strength and serve the good of this city. So let's seek the heavenly city that is to come. And, uh, you know, these exhortations, mm, on your own time, choose one. (laughs) There's a lot here. Choose one. And uh, reflect on it and meditate upon it. And uh, serve this city through it. Let's pray together.